0: You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. All right, it was a Monday morning. I was sitting in a Canera Bread in Cincinnati, Ohio. I was supposed to be meeting the senior vice president of all of corporate HR of Macy's um, Incorporated. And I had never in my life worked a corporate job Uh, And so even though I was relatively poised externally, I was definitely sweating bullets internally. And I moved to Cincinnati with the hopes of finding my calling, uh, what I was going to do with my life. But I had not landed a job yet. So the church I was at thought it would be a good idea to put a college grad on the stage of a thousand person church in the suburbs and let him give a two minute spiel on his life. And why he would be a great candidate for your open internship. It just so happened that a woman named Sherry was there, and Sherry was the SVP of Macy's HR. And so, 26 weeks out of the year, she worked in Cincinnati, and 26 weeks out of the year, she worked in New York City. Uh, and when that particular week, she was in attendance. So, she pulled me aside afterward and said, Hey, let's grab coffee tomorrow. I might have something for you. So Sherry and I met and I learned about her journey through the ranks of the corporate elite and she learned about my journey of being a summer camp counselor. There is a lot of overlap between those two jobs, if you didn't know. Uh, There's actually no overlap. Um, But one of the last things she said would be the hinge point where my perspective on the world would change forever. She asked, if our team taught you, could you create talent development documents for the glory of God. And I sort of jokingly said, I uh, is that possible? And she said, it's not that it's possible. It's that it's the whole point. Can one create documents, exchange email, run spreadsheets, draw blue prints, lead meetings, organize budgets, and conduct experiments for the glory of God? Is it possible to administer meds, instruct a classroom, cook dinner, have a bedtime routine, assess property, do homework, and close a sale for the glory of God? It seems like an easy question to answer, but let's be honest, that category, the category that we call work, isn't really honed in on in the church. One of the fascinating realizations I have had about my own profession the last nine months is that the pastorate tends to harp on the experiences of people that take up a very small percentage of their lives. Scripture, prayer, community, etc. But take an audit of your schedule. Let's just pretend that you sleep seven hours a night. Let's say you work eight hours a day. Let's say you allot two hours for your combined three meals plus commuting. And if you have kids, you spend your hours parenting, nurturing, playing, cleaning, cooking. And maybe you spend an hour or so exercising. So now you've got approximately two to three hours of your day left, maybe. And if, if you have slayed the Netflix dragon or the entertainment monster, then maybe you have time to give to spiritual stuff, prayer, scripture, community, etc. Here's what I'm getting at. The church hasn't done anyone any favors in the way we have continued furthering the divide between what we consider sacred and what we consider secular, between the clergy and the laity, between what is spiritual and what is not spiritual. And if you look up the word spiritual in the Old Testament, it will be found exactly zero times. It's not in the Old Testament because the Hebrew worldview consists of all of life being spiritual. There was no such thing as secular. If you had asked Jesus, hey, how is your spiritual life going? He wouldn't know what you meant. He probably would have said, oh, do you mean how is my life going? Because all of my life is spiritual. What is one of the first things we ever read about Jesus? is that he was a construction worker. He built things. And then he was a teacher. He was a rabbi. And instead of living in a hyper-compartmentalized life, where his life was split between what is God's and what is his, he lived an integrated life that was woven into the fabric of what we call the kingdom of God. Jesus likely went home every day covered in sawdust. Why? Because God came to give us our dignity back. He shows us we were made for work. And we read in the New Testament that we are a kingdom of priests and priestesses. This does not make everyone into church workers, but it does turn everyone's work into a sacred calling. And so from now until Advent, we are going to spend our time processing and praying through and considering work. And the beauty of it is, I will not be the sole teacher on the subject. We're going to have some folks from this community teach us on the holistic nature of work. And there is so much cultural messaging around work. Everything from working for the weekend, which use work as this thing that we have to do, but dread doing so we work to play and can't wait till Friday at 430. Or that work must give us all meaning and purpose And if we find that our jobs drag or feel relatively meaningless, that we are somehow in the wrong job, and there's really only one job out there that's going to fill this existential ache in my body for meaning, or that work is merely something that I receive a paycheck from. So there's plenty of things that I don't receive financial compensation for, and thus that isn't work. But so much of the scriptures speak of this idea of work, and church historians and theologians group this idea of work into a larger category. It's called vocation. It stems from the Latin root vocatio. It just means calling. And even that word has a lot of church baggage around it, and we'll unpack some of that. But before we get into the nuts and bolts of work itself, it's really important to talk about the who of work, before we talk about the what of work, because the what of work, especially for the majority of us in this room, has the great potential, if it hasn't already, to define everything about the who we are of work. Who are you? I was in a um, meeting, like a networking meeting a couple months ago, and the moderator of this meeting said, we're sitting around round tables, and he says, here's the, fir- the first 15 minutes of our time together. You have to talk about everything except what you do. You cannot ask the other person what they do, and you cannot voluntary, voluntarily talk about what you do to receive a paycheck which was a very startling exercise because everyone around our table was defined by what they do. And finally, an older, wiser woman sitting at our table said, maybe this is a good opportunity to ask ourselves who we are. And so we went around the table and described who we were. And it was such a humiliating exercise because each of us fumbled over talking about who we were without talking about what we were. On the first page of the scripture, we read that God makes man in his image and according to his likeness. The word image is the Hebrew word "salem," and it can be translated idol, or statue. An idol is a physical representation of an invisible being, and a statue was put in the temple of every god in the ancient world so that the worshiper could see what that god was like. We, you and I, were put on earth to make visible the invisible god. The entire cosmos is God's temple, and we are God's Idols, his image bearers. We are the creators, representatives to his creation. So when we hear the command, do not make an idol for yourself, it is because God alone is to be worshiped, yes, and it's because we don't need to make an idol. We are the idols. You are the image of God. There are no other images. There are no other representations. There are a thousand things that speak of the existence of God, Animals, fire, water, trees, instruments, and land, but there is no one like humanity that represents God. The most subversive piece of literature that the ancient Near Eastern world had was Genesis 1 and 2. And it's not just people in power, the pharaohs and the rulers and the kings that are representing Yahweh. It's we who do not register on the map of the global enterprise. We image God. So when Adam and Eve were formed in the garden, they received everything they needed from God. There is nothing that they needed that was not in the garden, and there is nothing that they needed that was not found outside of God. So when Genesis 3 starts, what the serpent is doing is targeting the most subtle lies of the human heart. Has God really given me himself? And so when the serpent starts to question Eve, she makes one mistake. Eve does not ask God what he said. She just entertains a dialogue with the enemy. Satan tells Eve, your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good from evil. You you will be like God. Do you hear what the ever so subtle lie is? It's so unbelievably subtle that it's nearly impossible to see it. The lie, he's telling her is that she's not like God. And taking the fruit will make her like God. The truth is she's made in the image of the invisible God. Satan is taunting Eve with something that she could have that would make her into someone that she already is. Satan is taunting Eve with something that she could have that would make her into someone that she already is. This is the game the devil plays every single day with every single one of us. He puts something in front of you and he makes you to believe that to take that thing would give you the status that you actually already have. The enemy's goal is that you never, ever, ever understand your identity in the kingdom of God. And you never really accept that the God of the universe can be addressed as intimately as Father Satan cannot take your identity. He can just get you to hand it to him. He has no power to remove who God says you are, which is his child. He has no power to remove what he did not give you in the first place. He is only wanting to tempt you to hand it over to him with the ever so subtle lies You can't actually experience satisfaction and intimacy with God. You're not actually as loved as you think you are. God doesn't actually have your best interest in mind. And Eve, the mother of all living, trades in her identity of being securely fashioned and completely loved for the identity of the mother of all sin. It is the great exchange. And Eve unplugs from her identity of life. And once she does that, she believes the ever-present lie that she can somehow attain what she already has. And then there comes a difficult truth. Now you're going to die. And so God escorts Adam and Eve out of the garden because now they have a false identity. And he's not going to have them live in immortality in their fallen state. His escorting them out is actually A grace. Protection is the reason that God expels because to keep them in the garden would be to keep them in their false selves forever. And there's an angel that's put there to actually guard the garden and the tree of life. Now, fast forward to John 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is the coming of the King. Glory to God in the highest because the king is here. And the whole story that John is pointing to is Genesis 2.0. In the beginning was God, in the beginning was the word. God lives among us and walks among us just as he did in the garden, and he becomes the new and better Adam. And John's gospel is this narrative of the life of Jesus, and it ends in a garden. Jesus hung on the tree of death And he turns that tree of death into the tree of life, buried in a tomb, in a garden. And guess who is sitting, waiting in the garden upon resurrection? An angel. But this time the angel is not guarding the garden, but welcoming all who would come into the garden. See, in the new garden, on the new first day of the week, in the new story of the new creation, the sign says, welcome, he is not here, he is risen. And Jesus appears to the twelve, and he meets his disciples, and he breathes on them, hearkening it back to the story of Genesis 1 and 2, where the breath of God fills the nostrils of Adam and Eve. The new creation begins, and now we are his new creation, the ones who have been breathed on by the Holy Spirit. Now, we're going to backtrack just for a moment because there are two examples of the intersection of identity and vocation that I think are really instructive for us. The first couple pages of Exodus are really helpful. The people of God are working in Egypt, and a new government regime takes over, and they see that Israel keeps multiplying literally keeps having children. And Pharaoh, the ruler, says, you can't have that, so let's put them in bondage lest they outnumber us. We go to war and they destroy us. So Israel's enslaved. And this is where it gets very interesting. It says, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, the first whose name was Shiphrah and the second whose name was Puah, when you help the Hebrew women give birth, observe as they deliver. If the child is a son, kill him, but if it's a daughter, she may live." The midwives, however, feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt told them. They let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this and let the boys live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very numerous. Since the midwives feared God, he gave them families." Pharaoh then commanded all his people, you must throw every son born to the Hebrews into the Nile, but let every daughter live. This is actually somewhat funny. The midwives who are working for an oppressive ruler are asked by this king to kill the boys born to Hebrew women. They refuse to do that. He sees over the course of a few weeks or months that more and more boys are getting born. And he says, why aren't you killing them? And their response is literally, I mean, they're popping them out too fast. We can't get to them. So sorry. And what's Pharaoh going to say to that? Well, that's not true. Pharaoh doesn't know. Pharaoh has no background. He has no education in midwifery. He has no education in birthing. Uh, He's just like, okay. He just says, if you see them, throw them in the river. So think about this for a moment. Two Hebrew women gather, they look around, they see there are a ton of babies being born to Hebrew women, so they put together a midwifery business. The government steps in and says, hey, hey, kill all the boys. Their response is, that feels unjust, that's bad for our business, and we don't really care what the king who is leading a violent regime against our people has to say, so we're not going to do that. But what does Yahweh have to say about that? These two women's identities were not rude in anything Pharaoh would say or do. They're unmoved. It says they feared God, not in the sense of being afraid of God, so much as being known by God. And then it actually goes on to say that not only did God bless the people of Israel with more children, but that since these two women feared God, he gave them families. The very thing the enemy threatened them with, no children, God turns right around and blesses them with more children right in the midst of the one who is killing children. Do we believe God like that? The amount of fear that the midwives don't have and the intersection of their faith and their vocation, of their calling and of the flourishing of their people collides and is laughter in the face of the enemy. The women refuse to change their business practices because of their identity And thus, in doing so, are part of a much larger story of preserving the nation of Israel that will one day bring both the immediate deliverer in Moses and the ultimate deliverer in Jesus. And then we see just a few verses later that Moses is born. He's placed in the basket where Pharaoh's daughter would find him and have compassion on him. So what happens? Pharaoh's daughter says, Go find this boy's mom, and I will pay her to take care of him. Wild. The ruler who said, kill every Hebrew boy that's born, his daughter finds a Hebrew boy, goes to the mother of that boy, and says, the government who doesn't want this boy alive will pay you to raise him. That's wild. Egypt was considered the most scientific and academic of ancient society. So Moses is loved and cared for by his mother, who is compensated for said love, and adopted into the royal Egyptian family, is schooled, educated, trained in the ways of the Egyptians, while maintaining his identity as a Hebrew. And his name in Hebrew means to pull out of the water, to deliver. And so he gets so many things from the Egyptians. Wisdom, knowledge, military training, leadership, experience. He's in all the meetings. He even leads battles. But he does not get his identity from them. He gets his identity from the father who calls him a deliverer. Now, where does the enemy attack most often? He is always whispering about our identity. Moses is walking around the land and he sees one of his people getting attacked by an Egyptian. And so what does he hear? You are the deliverer. Deliver him. Deliver him. Do whatever it takes. Deliver him now. You cannot walk past that. This is what you hate. This is what you are against. This is unjust. Do something about it. End his life. And you can almost hear God saying, nope, not this way. Stop. Take a breath. Come back. We'll sort it out. Hang in there. Nope, this is your destiny. Deliver him now. And so Moses, with a constrained spirit, kills the Egyptian and hides his body. And it says the next day he went out and saw two of his own people fighting. And he steps in to break it up. And what do they say? Who made you a commander and judge over us? Are you planning to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Here's the irony. Actually, that is exactly who God called Moses to be but they are using it in a mocking way. And now Moses is very confused about his identity. It says, then Moses became afraid and thought, what I did is certainly known. Moses knew who he was, And then all of a sudden, he hears the whisper of the enemy that distorts his identity, and he is covered in fear, shame, and guilt. And he flees Egypt into the desert, wanders around for 40 years. He was destined to deliver the people of God from Egypt, and he becomes an exiled murderer, the exact opposite of his identity. And here is the most important part. It takes a personal encounter with God for his identity to be rediscovered and even still for two whole chapters there's this dialogue between Moses and God where Moses has lost all confidence of who God has called him to be and out of that what God is inviting him to do so much so that Moses attempts to convince God there was someone else for the job it's not me and God's like no it is you no it is you this is God saying to Moses I don't need a shepherd i need a king and i need you to act like a king This is Jesus saying to Peter, you know what? I don't need a hype man. I don't need an upfront man. I need a rock. That's what I need. That's who you are. That's what I've called you to be. And I just have to wonder how many of us actually know who we are. Have we encountered the living God in a way where he has named us? And unfortunately, in the world of evangelicalism, we have somehow championed the idea that people are called to ministry and the rest of us just go and do stuff. Ministry means service. So everyone here is called to ministry. The vast minority of us are called to minister inside the church, and the vast majority of us are called to minister outside the church. You work at a school, you work as a parent, you work in design, you work in sales. Whatever you're doing, you're not working outside the kingdom. And what you are doing is no less important to God than what I am doing and is not any less spiritual. But so much of the confusion is first and foremost around our identity. Years ago, I was getting to know Dave, who would soon become a mentor of mine. And as I was getting to know him, he said this to me. You know, I fly planes for a paycheck, but God has called me a navigator. And I said to him out loud, that is very strange, because it is such interesting language. But I watched his life play out, and I watched him diagnose problems, make quick but wise decisions. I saw him lead with a level head in high-stress circumstances. And I heard him relay the story post-9-11, where he was flying, and there was a passenger on the plane causing a significant disturbance. And the chief flight attendant came to the cockpit and said, Captain, we have an issue. And so Dave said, I am looking out the window, and all of the immediate thoughts just come flooding in, because he does not have a ton of information, right? Is this person armed? Are they already doing harm? What about my wife, my kids? In the span of five seconds, my entire life flashed before me, and so I did what I do every morning. I simply asked Jesus, what the heck do I do? He said he waited 30 seconds alerted air traffic control, got up out of his seat, found the man, escorted him to the front of the plane, asked him his name, his issue, realized he was having a massive mental breakdown, fetched him water, got his suitcase out of storage, retrieved his meds, calmed him down, landed the plane in 45 minutes. Now, can you teach that? Absolutely, you can teach that. Flying school, crisis management, his previous military training, simulations, de-escalate, de-escalation training, and the Spirit of God. Yes, he is a pilot. That is what he is paid to do. But God has called him to navigate, to be able to take high-stress situations and in a matter of moments, diagnose the issue, provide a clear path forward, and delegate responsibilities so that everyone can be assured they are safe and taken care of. He is a navigator. Outside the kingdom, he is moving warm bodies from one place to another. That's all he's doing. Inside the kingdom, He's navigating the world, providing safety, securing trust, establishing command in a chaotic environment. Do you see the difference? Outside the kingdom, jobs are jobs, eat or be eaten, survive and advance. Inside the kingdom, callings are identified, culture is created, people are pursued, flourishing happens. Outside the kingdom, policing is law enforcement. Good guys versus bad guys, straight up war. Violence is both the means and it's the end. Inside the kingdom, it's actually transformative and reconciling. Outside the kingdom, educators are relaying facts. Inside the kingdom, educators are teachers and models showcasing the world God has made to young minds, molding them to think, grow, and mature into citizens. Outside the kingdom, medical personnel are pushing pills. Inside the kingdom, the face of a nurse in the midst of great anxiety can actually heal the soul. Culture says, I am what I do. I am defined by my profession. Scripture says literally the opposite. I do what I am. I am defined by God, and I cannot help but act out of that identity. God has a calling on your life. Individualism in the Western world, and even the Western church, is unbelievably destructive and Unbelievably isolating. That is true. And yet, and yet, Psalm 139 is also true. God is a personal God. He has made you and called you to be someone. The whole premise of our faith rides on the fact that God has come for us, which means that God has come for you. You are not a mistake in the universe. You are not random. You're not a stat. In fact, you're the opposite. You are wanted and pursued and unique. For it was God who created your soul and knit it together and he's inviting you back to your true identity and he's calling you to something out of that identity. And it is less about going out there and turning over every stone to find the thing God is asking you to do and more about the journey with God inward. How he has wired you, equipped you, and what he has put in you and how might the intersection of your personal dispositions collide For with the need for order, structure, mercy, grace, community, and justice in the world. How are you called to represent God to His creation? Because you are called to that. And you will hear this a few more times, but I believe this work, which is where we spend the majority of our nine to five lives, whether it's in an office, a lab, classroom, or a hospital, or at home, wherever it is. It is one of, if not maybe, the primary environment where our spiritual formation gets worked out and where your discipleship to Jesus has real opportunity to mature. This is especially true if you're single, but even if you're married and have kids, it's true. We spend the majority of our days working. And the hope is that when you walk into a room, whether it's your child's bedroom or the office kitchen or looking at a handful of students, that you are both joining God in where he is taking this thing and you are answering the invitation that God has given you. When Sherry sat me down and told me that she could go out and find a ton of gifted, competent people to work for Macy's, she told me she wasn't looking for gifted, competent people. She was looking for someone who was going to join God at work on the 18th floor of talent development. And that did not mean that I was going to start sharing my faith all the time. In fact, I only in a full 12 months shared my faith one time and it was over a beer after work. <clears throat> and Sherry, who I have so much respect for, said to me in that Panera meeting, I want you to know something. I am not paying you to share your faith. I am paying you to be an unbelievable intern for this company. And if you listen to the Spirit of God in being an unbelievable intern, it will speak. And it was the question over the beer that said, why are you working at Macy's when you have no apparent desire to work in corporate America? And I said, God sent me here. And he said, BS, essentially. (laughs) And that led to a wild conversation about the fact that God was working at, at, at literally Macy's. And since then, I still keep in touch with people who work on the 18th floor of talent development. And there have been four people since working there 12 years ago. And Sherry, who's worked there for 40 years, who have actually caught the vision of the kingdom breaking forth on the 18th floor in downtown Cincinnati. It's not a compartmentalized faith, and it's also not a, a means to an end. I gotta make my way in and be a good worker so that I can then share my faith. It's I am doing good work because God has called me to work. God has called you to something. The invitation is... Before what he has called you to is who he has called you. What is your name? Let's pray. Jesus, you have called us your siblings in the faith. Would you remind us of that? Father, you have called us your children. Would you remind us of that? Spirit of a living God, you have empowered us to walk out our faith in this section of our city. Would you remind us of that? Thank you for calling us to yourself. And out of that, we go, but help us not rush past the most important step. We ask you, even in this moment, and we ask you the rest of this week, who have you called me to be? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicknox.org.